0: Just a few moments ago we sung the song that contained these lyrics all the treasures of this world will never satisfy you alone are endless joy so i cling to christ what a powerful lyric what an orienting lyric showing us where we should be seeing clearly and where the affections of our heart should be set And the question I want us to ask as we get going this morning is, do we believe that? Do we believe that all the treasures of this world will never satisfy us at the the deepest place in our being? And do we believe that Jesus not only offers endless joy, but is himself endless joy? That his love is better than life, better than anything that we could own or possess, I want to begin with that question because I think it's a challenging question. Some of the songs we sing show us where our hearts should be and where our lives should be, and they help orient us to think about that. But as I think about my own life, I think about how challenging it is to live up to that. My family and I, over the years, have made numerous moves. We had an opportunity to live in Peru. We had an opportunity to live in Canada, which is where we were right before we moved back here to Bryan College Station. And before we left Canada, where we spent eight years We began thinking about the move, and we had to have a garage sale because we accumulated so much stuff, and it was a little bit embarrassing to have people come over, and we just had all this stuff out here that at one point we thought was so important that we spent good money on, but now we were just hoping to recollect a little bit of that, and I remember talking with my wife, and when we asked this question, how is our lives stuffed with so much stuff? Maybe you felt that when you've moved, or maybe you feel that right now as you just think about um, what you have surrounding you. How is my life, how is your life stuffed with so much stuff? We're going to see Jesus today tackle this issue head on, and he's going to do so because he knows this central truth. One of the greatest competitors to our relationship with God is our relationship with things. One of the greatest competitors in your life and in my life to a relationship with God is our obsession and fascination and our relationship with stuff. And so we're going to call our study today The Good Life because Jesus is going to talk about life and what it consists of and what it doesn't consist of. And so if you're new to Christianity, I want you to know that you're going to see Jesus challenging your view of the good life. And if you're not new to Christianity, you're going to see Jesus challenging your view of the good life. And so as we look at this, let's just admit up front probably what we're feeling. And this is probably going to be a really challenging message uh, just with this introduction. And that's okay. We should expect that Jesus sometimes is going to say some very direct things that maybe is going to step on our toes. But he's doing that because he thinks it's worth the price for a little bit of awkwardness in our life then we can get something of immense value in exchange. And so as we think about that, let's uh, just take a moment to go before the Lord and ask him to to search our hearts and to work on us this morning and to, to wean us off the things of this world and to set us more and more upon him. So let's pray. Lord, it's so easy for us to accumulate things. Impulse buying Things that look in a moment like it'd be really fun to have, but then end up just collecting dust. And we oftentimes find ourselves asking, how is my life stuffed with so much stuff? As we get ready to look at this teaching of Jesus, really one of the first stories he's told in the Gospel of Luke, help us to to be open to what he has to say. Help us to put ourselves in the position of those who are listening and when Jesus first said these things and to receive the challenge that he gave to them, that we might understand really more of his interest in our life, his mission in our life, what he wants to do in our life. And so, Lord, the best that we're able to do right now, we just open ourselves to you. We ask that you would give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, and eyes to see what Jesus is getting at here. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Just a brief word about context. Jesus has been talking about some really, really important things. He's been talking to his disciples about how it is increasingly going to be more difficult to identify as a follower of him. And that's because Jesus knows he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and betrayed. He's going to be given over to the Roman authorities and they're going to crucify him. And Jesus knows this, and Jesus knows his disciples are going to to face some difficult times in the future, so he warns them about not fearing those who can only kill the body, and then after that have nothing more they can do. He wants to encourage them to have courage, and he's talking about these weighty issues of eternal life, and then someone interrupts Jesus, because he, he really can't focus in on what Jesus is saying, because his heart is preoccupied with something else. And so this is what Luke tells us in chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now this is just really odd. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's going around telling people about God and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, the coming kingdom. He's been telling his disciples about courage and following him. And here's a man who just says to Jesus out of the blue, Teacher, tell my brother, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had one chance to talk with Jesus, <laughs> one question to ask him, <laughs> would this be something that would be at the forefront of your mind? Well, it was at the forefront of his. We don't know the exact details here. Probably has happened in many cases in this day and age. The inheritance of a father's estate went to the firstborn child because he was then in charge of the family. There may have been a little bit of disbursement to the other kids, but not likely. And so maybe this man saw his brother now in charge of his father's estate, and he wants a piece of it. I mean, maybe. We don't know for sure exactly what's going on here. But this is what this man, when he had an opportunity to talk to Jesus, wanted to say to Jesus. And this is what Jesus said in response. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's an interesting response from Jesus, isn't it? He didn't say, oh, man, I feel bad for you. He didn't say, you know what, maybe when I get done preaching here, I I can help you out or something like that. He just said to him, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And maybe it's because Jesus has been talking about some very weighty things, and this man doesn't have the ears to hear. His his mind is, is just focused on this inheritance, I came across this quote by Warren Wiersbe, who said about this situation, there are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change their hearts. I think that might be what's going on here with this man. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to launch into teaching. He's going to give a statement, and then he's going to go into a story called a parable. And so he begins by saying to them that is, the crowd gathered who heard this man Take care and be on your guard against. And before you see what he says to be on your, on, on your guard against, just think if, if Jesus is telling you to take care, pay attention, be on your guard against this one thing, I think the crowd would be leaning in. Okay, tell us, tell us what is so important that we need to guard ourselves against this. And so he says, take care, be on your guard against all Covetousness. Ness. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> I actually practiced that before out loud because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to nail it. Uh, covetousness. This is a word that we don't use all the time, but this is something that his audience would have been familiar with. Let me just define it really fast. To covet means to crave or earnestly desire something that belongs to someone else. To see something and say, I've got to have that. The readers, or sorry, the original audience of Jesus would have been familiar with this word because this was one of the Ten Commandments. Remember when Moses gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, when people had been liberated from slavery in Egypt and they were getting ready to go into the Promised Land and Moses went up on the mountain and God's forming this covenant with this people through whom he wants to to declare good news and salvation to the world. He gave them a series of directives on how to live their life as they enter the new land. And this is what... Commandment number 10 said, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here in getting with, with this command here, God is he's getting at heart issues with the people. Their desires, the things that their eyes would set upon, And they would say, I want that for myself. And so if we could flip it over and maybe put it in a more positive way, we could say coveting has to go along with this idea. If only I had, and then fill in that blank, then I would be happy. It might be some big, huge issues. Or it might just be a small issue. Something in the moment that strikes you as being really, really good to have so that your heart begins to crave it. The way the NIV translates that word of warning from Jesus is like this. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I wonder how that strikes you and me. Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness, all kinds of greed. How do you hear that? Do you feel like that dials in on your heart? Or do you feel like, huh? I don't know if I really struggle with that. So, Jesus goes into, uh, I'm, I'm excited before we get to this story. He's going to give us the reason here. He says, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For now, here's the reason why Jesus wants you and me, his original audience, to be on their guard against all forms of covetousness and greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus wanted that, that crowd that was listening to him to understand that their life does not consist in the abundance of possessions and accumulating more things. Now, they were, by and large, very poor people. <laughs> they were farmers, agrarian life, many of them eating hand-to-mouth every day. They didn't have opportunity to really accumulate wealth Kings did, tax collectors did, but the ordinary average person didn't. But Jesus still thought they needed to guard themselves against all kinds of covetousness and greed because one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I wonder if Jesus was standing right here today, if he would make the case even more strongly with us. We have opportunities to to build wealth, to accumulate things, and so when we hear Jesus' words here, spoken to that crowd, I wonder if we can hear it spoken directly to us. What if we could hear him say, Dan, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Heather, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I think if we hear what Jesus is saying, this should become the attitude of my heart. I must continually guard against greed because I am prone to thinking that life consists in the abundance of possessions. I know that that's my inclination, oftentimes, to think that. Just one more thing, just one more click, one more purchase. And so, let's hear what Jesus says. And now, Jesus is going to go into a story. It's a parable. A parable is simply a story that illustrates a spiritual truth. And, and The next section of the Gospel of Luke, he's going to go into a lot of these. You've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've heard of the the parable of the the rich young man. You've heard of uh, so many of the the good parables, the parable of the lost son. This all coming up here. So This is really one of the first stories that Jesus tells. And so Luke tells us this in verse 16. He told them a parable saying, "...the land of a rich man produced plentifully." And he thought to himself, "...what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops." So here's a rich man who has fields, and it's just a bumper crop. And it's just coming in like crazy. And so he's asking a really good question here, isn't it? What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Here's this rich man. He has places to store crops, but not this much crop. So what should I do? What would you counsel him to do in this moment? I know what James, the brother of the Lord, would say. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This man should stop and say, God, what should I do with this bumper crop? You've already blessed me so much. What should I do with this? How How can I use this? How should I invest this? This is what the man said, verse 18. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. What's interesting here, he's asking the good question and he answers the question. And in the original Greek, four times he's using the pronoun my my crops, my barn, my harvest. My grain. And eight times he uses the word "I," <laughs> and so he's, in a sense, just dialed in on himself. He's taking counsel with himself. This is where he's hanging out, and so we can say in this moment he's self-absorbed. And it's easy to do that. Think about when you get a raise or you get unexpected inheritance. What's the first thing you start doing? Dreaming about? Where are your thoughts? This is the great picture, by the way. <laughs> My friends, whenever our hearts get entangled with money, with possessions, with things, it can be very dangerous. It's not that things are bad. It's not that money is bad. But they can become dangerous because of what our hearts do with them. In fact, Moses, when he was leading people into the Promised Land had another speech he gave to them. And he told them this. He said, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart will be lifted up. You'll become proud and you forget the Lord your god beware lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have got me this wealth you shall remember the Lord your god for it is he who gives you power to get wealth i know our default mode is to think i've accomplished these i set out my goals i worked hard i went to school i got trained this way I've earned every dime I've gotten. And it's true. You've worked hard. And you've gotten exactly where you are. But who gave you the mind? Who set the opportunities before you? Who brought that opportunity for wealth to be in your life? God did. And Moses wanted his people to understand, you've got to watch out. You've got to be careful. Because when your goods increase, When your portfolio is expanding, when things look really, really good, it's at that precise moment that you are at most danger of forgetting God. So we might put it like this. To have our eyes focused on things, to have our hearts set on more stuff, keeps us from thinking about the things that matter most. Jesus continues in his parable in verse 19. He, he says that this is what the man said I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He's arrived. He doesn't have to worry about working, he doesn't have to worry about sowing crops. He's got crops laid, he's got so much money laid aside, he doesn't have to worry for years. So he relaxes, and he enjoys his wealth. There's a psalm that says this. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, that is God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Here's a man, he doesn't have room for any thoughts about God. Why? (laughs) We know what he's thinking about. We know where his thoughts are set. And this is exactly why Jesus tells his audience, and he tells us as we listen in on this story and this conversation, you've got to watch out against greed, against covetousness, because your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And Jesus thinking life is about something else than accumulating more and more things. And this is how Jesus begins to wind down this story. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? I don't know about you, friends, but I find this to be very sobering. This man, his life is over. God in his determination brings him before his throne to have his life evaluated for the good he's done, for the bad he's done. And God's verdict upon this man is you have acted the fool. You spent all this time and you've accumulated this wealth and you've you spent it on yourself. But now what happens? to all that that you worked for. When God uses this word fool here, he's not engaging in name-calling. He's attaching a description to a person who has lived in a certain kind of way. A fool is a person who's lacking in judgment or prudence or sense. One who acts unwisely. I'm sure this man, if you asked him, you lack in judgment or sense, so you're acting unwisely, he'd be like, no. Look at all this wealth I've accumulated. I remember hearing an interview with a man who made his first million dollars, and he said, whenever I walked in a room after I made that first million, I assumed I was the smartest person in the room. He was puffed up. And here God uses the designation fool. A person who acts unwisely. Biblically, it describes the person who disregards God who lives however they want to live because they are the center of their universe. So this man's soul is required of him. He has to give an account for how he used the things in his life. The Apostle Paul helps orient us in saying, we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. According to Paul's thinking, who met the resurrected Jesus Christ, life doesn't end at death. It continues on. But here's the thing. We brought nothing into this world. Naked we've come into it. And we can't take anything out of it. We'll one day leave this world. But we can't take everything we've accumulated with us. I'm mindful of what Billy Graham once said. I never saw a U-Haul behind a hearse. I'm assuming this was a stage picture because, you know, even if a person did that, you know. I know kings would sometimes be buried with their treasures, but there it is in the ground with their rotting corpse. And this is what Jesus says at the very end of his teaching. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A person is a fool, who spends their whole life just accumulating things for themselves and has no regard with God. He says uh, this person is not rich toward God. I want to make reference to something called the anatomy of folly. I'm riffing here on my professor Ralph Davis' work on the book of Luke. He uses some words here. I've kind of rearranged some of the wording of it, but I give him the credit for this. But basically, this man, in his foolishness, made some fatal mistakes. Number one, there was a false estimate of his purpose in life. He thought, I exist to collect and store things for me. He had a false estimate of time. He was thinking, I have all the time in the world for me. He had a false estimate of security. And thinking, I have many goods stored up for me. I can control life with the wealth I've got. He had a false estimate of control. I've laid up treasure for my future with me. I love what Philip Graham Ryken said in his commentary on this passage. He said, this man thought he had a storage problem, but what he really had was a spiritual problem. And that's why Jesus used this as an opportunity to tell the crowd, to tell you and me, watch out, be on your guard against all forms of covetousness. Or as Jesus said in another place, what will it profit someone if they gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? So my friends, here's an important question. Why does Luke record this for us? I mean, he, he, he researched the life of Jesus. He was an evangelist. He interviewed uh, the eyewitnesses, the apostles, he put together this biography of Jesus so you and I might have confidence in the things that Jesus said and taught. Why did Luke use valuable papyri to record this story for Jesus? Because he knows, my friends, that you and I are inclined to think that our lives consist in the abundance of possessions. And Jesus tells us, no, it doesn't. You can be rich in the things of this world, or you can be rich toward God. And so let me put it like this. If I can dial it in as tight as I can as a summary of what this passage is about, simply this. My soul is more important than my stuff. My soul is more important than my stuff. Jesus thinks your soul is more important than your stuff. He not only (laughs) kindly and directly taught us this. But he didn't die for our things. He died for our soul, that we might be reconciled to God. So just a couple points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Take heed to guard against greed. You and I need to take heed to guard against greed. I mentioned a while ago that Jesus' original audience was, was just basically composed of very poor Agrarian people who didn't have a whole lot, but that's not the case with you and me. In fact, according to the World Wealth Calculator, if you make thirty three thousand five hundred dollars or more, you're among the top five, probably five percent wealthiest people on the planet. That blew my mind when I saw that. That means there are six point two billion people on this planet who have less money, who have less wealth, who have less things than you do. I thought about how we need to take heed to guard against greed because we we just simply live in an Amazon culture. <laughs> uh, it, it's so easy for us just to, to be surfing and to see something and to click and have it there right away. In fact, there's 148 Point six million of us who pay Amazon extra money to actually get our stuff to us faster. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying we should ask some questions, right? Do we need to take heed to guard against greed? My friends, I fail at this all the time, too. It's easy to click and have it there the next day. I don't know if you've read this book by John Grisham called The Testament. The first 50 pages of this book were some of the the most uh, page-turning, seat-gripping pages that I've read in a story. It's a story of a man. It opens up with this uh, wealthy, elderly man who is on the verge of death. He has an 11 billion dollar empire, and he's He's alienated from everyone and family, and so it opens up with him furiously rewriting his will as he's on the verge of death. And what he does is he cuts every member of his family, everybody he was going to give his wealth to, and he gives it to one person that none of them knew about. It was an illegitimate daughter that he had who's now serving as a missionary in the Amazon jungle. Of course, you know, this... (laughs) Makes everyone mad, and when he dies, they find out exactly what happened. And The story goes on, where the lawyer has to search for this woman, and he finally finds her in the backwoods of the Amazon jungle, and this, around these primitive people, where money means nothing. And he tells her of the wealth that she now has, and he's really shocked that she has no interest in it. And in explaining why she doesn't, this is what she says to him. You worship money. You're part of a culture where everything is measured by money. It's a religion. It's the most important thing to people. This is how we evaluate people, and who we're going to spend time with is social classes and things like that. Do we worship money? You say, John, I'm here at church, I'm worshiping God. Okay. But let me ask that question again. Do you worship money? You believe in the profession that you make that Jesus is the center of all things. But is your life really centered on things? I think that we should ask the question like this. It's not a question of if greed is in my life, but where and what does it look like? One of the tough things about being a preacher is that when you look at a passage, you've got to preach it to yourself before you get up and talk to other people. And I was wrestling with this. And I was like, oh man, this, is, this makes me uncomfortable. But I think I have to ask myself the question. It's not if greed exists. Jesus wants us to be on guard against it. Where is it in my life? What does it look like? It might look differently in my life than it does in yours. And I'm sure it looks differently in yours than it does in mine. Jesus is so concerned about this because he tells us no servant can serve two masters, for he either hates the one and loves the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is not the preacher saying that. This is Jesus telling you and telling me we cannot serve God and money. Things, the abundance of possessions, wealth is the greatest competitor that you and I face with God. So that was the first point. Let's take heed to guard against greed. Here's the second one. Live your life abundantly. You say, well, John, isn't that kind of going against what you're saying there? Well, I'm actually talking about something Jesus said. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus gives us, in one sense, one of his life's missions. And this is what he said. I have come that they may have life And have it in abundance. Jesus wants you to have an abundant life. But Jesus doesn't think that abundance has to do with the accumulation of things. The abundance of possessions. He thinks it has everything to do with being rich toward God. To having our lives centered upon God. To having him be our everything. So Jesus does want you to live abundantly. (laughs) He even says it right here. This is part of his mission. That you would have life. He didn't say I've come that you may have wealth. He didn't come and say he didn't say I've come that you may have more and more possessions. He says I've come that you may have life. Eternal life, relationship with God, a place in his coming kingdom. And it's all free. We just trust him with it. And it's going to be an abundant life indeed. The apostle Paul in another place had us thinking about the Lord Jesus like this. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter He says to these uh, original people living in the Roman Empire, he says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that for I'm sorry, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Here's Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of lords, left heaven, came to earth, was born into poverty, lived much of his life in poverty. At one point said to his disciples, I don't even have a place to lay my head. He became poor so that he could take people like you and me who think we're rich because we're surrounded by a bunch of things but are really impoverished in spirit and draw us into a relationship with God to reconcile us to him. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, when you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security and you will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Why? Because Jesus lived and he died and gave himself for me and for you. That's our worth, regardless of what our bank account says. Paul the Apostle would later say to some Christians living in Philippi, a Roman colony, he said, I've learned, I've learned I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Why is that? Because as he told the Philippians, for me to live is Christ. Can we say that today, my friends? That for me, the driving desire, the motivation, my my everything is simply that I get to live for Christ. Here's the third and final point of application. I want to call you to be rich, but I want to call you to be rich in the right way. My friends, many of us have been blessed maybe in ways that we would have been surprised when we were younger, to have the opportunities set before us, to have the paycheck that we have, to have ourselves surrounded with good things. What do we do with these good things? Let's ask that question that the man in this story that Jesus told asked. What should I do with my stuff? This is how the Apostle Paul put it. He said, as for the rich in this present age... Let me just pause and say, if it's true that people who make $33,500 are among the top 5% of people in this world, I think that that would apply to us here. I don't know, maybe we could debate that. but, But let's just hear this as spoken to us. Let those people at Mercy Hill Church who are rich in this present age, let's charge them to not be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us With everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. My friends, some of you are doing this and you're doing it well. You do give away wealth. You do give away money. I know some people have adopted kids. I know some people have have adopted poor people in other parts of the country. I know some of you give money to organizations that help those in need. Some of you help uh, stock the food pantry here in town and give money to that. Let me just encourage you to do that more and more. Let's ask ourselves. People who, who say that we've been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, let's do it more and more. And maybe for some of us, this is a wake-up call. We have seen the money that comes through our hands as ours to spend on ourselves. Let just say, take care of yourself, yes. But maybe, I think what Jesus would steer us towards is to be rich toward God. To stop loving things and using people. And to love people by using our things to bless them, to encourage them. Mercy Hill Church, may you guard against greed so that you can live abundantly in Christ Jesus.